from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. If you close your eyes, you can almost picture the scene. It's the swankiest party ever. By 7 o'clock, the orchestra has arrived. No thin five-piece affair, but a whole pit full of oboes and trombones and saxophones and viols and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The house glows from the outside. You know that party. Maybe you've seen it in a movie sometime. Maybe you've read it in a book. The bar is in full swing, and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo. Or maybe you've been there. I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. The Great Gatsby was published in 1925, but the party scenes in the book aren't the only things that still feel familiar. In fact, this is a book that's familiar all over the world. A few years ago, I was in Tanzania in Africa on the edge of the Serengeti. We were staying in a tent camp, and there were a couple of beautiful old 1930s cars by one of the tents. I asked the young South African who managed the place if the cars ran. Absolutely, he told me. Every New Year's Eve, everybody dresses up in fine old clothes, loads into these fine old cars, and motors out into the African bush for what he called their Great Gatsby party. These characters have gone into the bloodstream. Gatsby is one of those novels that we can hold in common. And in fact, we know it even if we haven't read it. That is the writer Patricia Hampel. And whether you've read it or not, let's get a few things straight before we go on. The story is told by a young guy, not quite 30, named Nick Carraway. He's remembering the year that he left his home in the Midwest to make his fortune in New York City. Nick rents a house in the Long Island suburbs in a commuter town called West Egg. He makes friends with his next-door neighbor, Jay Gatsby, the one who throws the big swell parties. Gatsby was a poor farm kid who has now made it big. Just across a little inlet from these two bachelors lives Nick's cousin, Daisy. And she's the real reason Gatsby's here. He's been in love with her for years. The brilliance of Nick's voice is that you take a fairly melodramatic story with some fairly broadly drawn characters. I mean, Daisy Buchanan, let us not mince words, is an airhead. I'm paralyzed with happiness. She laughed again as if she had said something very witty. And Gatsby is an unreal figure in many ways. He's a bootlegger, said the young ladies, moving somewhere between his cocktails and his flowers. The only thing that holds all of this together is the laconic, musing, slightly damaged voice of Nick Carraway trying to make sense of it. I was within and without, simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. And in fewer than 200 pages, 
a lot of life happens. Gatsby tries to rekindle his long-ago romance with Daisy. Tom, Daisy's obnoxious jock husband, is furious, but Tom is meanwhile having his own affair with Myrtle Wilson. And this being all about human nature... It comes to a full-blown, tragic, bodies-on-the-stage ending. It's a book with a lot of plot, as novelist Jonathan Franzen reminds us. Myrtle dies. And, spoiler alert, so does Gatsby, along with his dreams. Gatsby is the last Horatio Alger character. He's a combination of innocence and faith. He is utterly, totally, completely committed to his dreams, which grown men aren't supposed to be. And for the late Professor Matthew Brookley, who studied Fitzgerald for more than half a century, it was the dreamer he admired. Gatsby wanted to get the hell out of the Midwest, and I wanted to get the hell out of the Bronx. Brookley discovered the great Gatsby in 1949. The exact point at which I got hooked was when the Nick Carraway describes the Buchanan's lawn. The lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning gardens. I really don't like lawns. I don't like grass. But I read this description of the lawn leaping over sundials and fountains. I said, you better pay attention to this because this writer is doing things that you've never seen before. The miracles that he produced were the miracles of getting at a lot while seeming to do nothing. But for Jonathan Franzen, it wasn't until he was in his 20s and writing that he became a true believer. I thought it was perfect, basically. Um, Did that encourage you to become a novelist or make you feel like giving up right then? Well, I, I subsequently read it about six more times. I read it every year or two. There's always stuff I forget. I think that's one of the the marks of a really incredible book is its ability to hide gems in plain sight. It was really in the early 90s when I read it for maybe the fourth or fifth time that I became a, a disciple of the book, a true deep fan, and to think that it was the miracle of American literature. What was it about it that had that kind of conversion experience for you? Precisely its lightness of touch. Here is somebody who found a way in 50,000 words to tell the central fable of America. And that is such a ponderous, heavy, enormous undertaking. And yet you feel like you're eating whipped cream. And yet, strangely, at the end, you feel nourished by the whipped cream. Like Nick Carraway, Franzen came east. He grew up in Missouri outside St. Louis. And when he reads The Great Gatsby, he reads it as a Midwesterner. I almost go to it for moral instruction at this point. Part of the great thing about the early pages is you immediately like Nick Carraway's father. Carraway Sr. giving what was essentially the primary lesson of my own youth from my own parents, which was don't judge anybody else. Have an open mind. Nobody's better than you. You're not any better than anybody else. That's as good a stab at getting at what it feels like to grow up in the Midwest as any other concept. Especially with the emphasis on you're not better than anyone else. Precisely. And then, you know, you arrive in Great Neck or you arrive in Midtown Manhattan and boy, is the world in a hurry to teach you otherwise. In my younger and more vulnerable years, 
My father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. I grew up in the Midwest as well, the middle-class Midwest in Omaha, Nebraska. I, I left Omaha as soon as I finished high school, and I was full of those romantic adolescent notions of this great, glowing, sophisticated Northeast. The summer after my freshman year in college, i just turned 19, and I spent a weekend at my roommate's huge old summer house on the beach in Southampton, Long Island, which was my first experience of the way the other half really lives. As I've been thinking about The Great Gatsby for this show, I, I remembered a, a, an entry from my journal at the time, and I, I dug it out. I now understand quite clearly, I think, why Jay Gatsby and Fitzgerald himself behaved as they did. Now seems to be one of my relativistic phases. I feel emotions of pity and boredom, occasionally awe here, not outraged indignation or bitterness, as one might assume. Like I say, I was 19. At the time, I was about to start my second year in college and meet more charismatic rich people and burn the candle at both ends and fail a course. Fitzgerald failed more than just one course during his college years. He had to redo his whole junior year at Princeton, and then he still didn't graduate. But he was always loyal to his alma mater, and in a manner of speaking, he still lives there. At Princeton's Firestone Library, way down in the bowels of the place, there are 89 boxes, 11 oversized containers, and in all, 44 linear feet of Fitzgerald's papers. A private elevator takes us down, and through a maze of locked doors and combination codes, we're in. This is where he lives. Donald Skemmer is the keeper of the Princeton collection. This is it. This is the manuscript of The Great Gatsby. It really is. You can read it yourself. That's how it starts, just as it is in the principle. In my younger and more vulnerable years, indeed. On the day I was visiting, Professor James West, who's a Fitzgerald specialist from Penn State, was also in the archives on a research trip. How was your day's work? Laborious but rewarding. He was reading through correspondence between Fitzgerald and his editor, Maxwell Perkins. West was in his 20s when he first read The Great Gatsby. I thought it was a racy story about bootleggers, uh, adultery, and a lot of drinking. Now I can see there's a bit more. He sees it in part by looking at the actual original manuscript pages. Look at things like ink colors, pencil colors. Professor West is a detective trying to figure out which scribblings are Fitzgerald's, which are his secretaries, which are his typists, and, and which come from the publisher's copy editors. Donald Skemmer, the archivist, pulls one page up close. You can see he's making corrections. He's making corrections on the line. He's erasing. He's crossing out. He had very straight lines for unlined paper. Yeah, yeah, he did. For a guy who drank a lot. 
we think of him as a wonderful stylist. We think of him as someone who wrote just like the birds sing. Uh, but in fact, his first drafts were often rather pedestrian. That's reassuring to those of us who try to write. What are we looking at here? These are Maxwell Perkins author files, correspondence files. And Fitzgerald is, is in Europe now, so he's in Rome. 1925, January 24th, so a few months before the appearance of The Great Gatsby. And he's writing energetic letters to Dear Max. This is the most important letter, so I'm having it typed. And this is where he wants Myrtle Wilson grotesquely. He says, I want Myrtle Wilson's breast ripped off when she's hit by Daisy in The Great Gatsby. And he says, it's not a bit dirty. <laughs> Even after he finished the letter, he couldn't stop writing. <laughs> he had a long PS and then telegrams. This is a telegram just weeks before the book hit the bookstores from Scott to Max. Is it too late to change title? <laughs> he went through many, many titles, uh, including Under the Red, White, and Blue, and Trimalchio, and Gold-Hatted. The High-Bouncing Lover. And uh, he, in the end, didn't think that The Great Gatsby was a very good title, was dissatisfied with it. Didn't he like the Red, White, and Blue? Under the red? That, he tried it the very last minute to yeah. change to the red, white, and blue, but poor long-suffering Maxwell Perkins at Scribner's said, uh, please, no. The collection at Princeton also holds some odds and ends. A coat that belonged to his infamous wife Zelda, keys from his desk, and the only known audio recording of F. Scott Fitzgerald. By your gracious patience, I will around the unvarnished tale deliver of my whole course of love. This is from 1939. Fitzgerald had moved to Hollywood to write movies, and the story goes that he was just walking along a pier and happened to pop into a recording studio and then spontaneously decided to recite. It's a little hard to make out the words, but but listen, this is Ode to a Nightingale by Fitzgerald's favorite poet, the, the romantic John Keats, who died at 26. My heart aches and drowsy my sense as if of him I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drain. Fitzgerald himself was dead the next year at age 44, a heart attack brought upon by years of drinking and hard living. When he died, fewer than 25,000 copies of The Great Gatsby had sold in total. These days, the novel sells almost that many copies every two weeks. Coming up ahead in our American Icons Hour, we hear more about Gatsby in the world of hip-hop. When I saw Puffy and Jay-Z and Russell Simmons, I felt like they were characters right out of Gatsby. It is Gatsby's world. We just live in it. I'm Kurt Anderson. This is Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. Gatsby. Every few decades, Hollywood makes a new version of The Great Gatsby. The latest one starred Leonardo DiCaprio as Jay Gatsby in a big, shiny, modern 3D adaptation by Baz Luhrmann. I live in all the capitals of Europe collecting jewels, hunting big game, painting a little. The excitement about Luhrmann's version had a lot to do with its highly theatrical style. 
But it's also about the source material, the novel that doesn't seem to date as the culture steals from it and refers to it over and over and over again in movies and fashion, literature, and on Saturday Night Live. Now that we've gotten more intimate with each other, we feel more comfortable. It's SNL, 1978. Comedian Andy Kaufman's on stage wearing a tuxedo doing his silly British man routine. Producers and the people who run the show said they trust me very much and that they would let me do anything I want and I could have the rest of the time if, if it takes that long. So He pulls out a book and opens it. In my younger and more vulnerable years... My father gave me some advice that I've been And begins to read one of the great works of American literature, like The Great Gatsby. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and detach itself to this quality. And he would just go on reading for as long as he could get away with. Usually he got booed off the stage. Scott Shepard is part of an experimental theater group called Elevator Repair Service. They have staged a production called Gats, which was inspired in part by Andy Kaufman. This being the legitimate theater, however, there are no cat calls, and Gats runs for more than six hours. It includes every word of Fitzgerald's novel, even the he says and she denies and I protested. And most of that comes out of the mouth of Scott Shepard, who plays Nick Carraway on the stage and also here today for Studio 360. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice. The entire Great Gatsby is in Shepard's head. But when he first read the book, growing up in Atlanta, not much of it stuck. All I remember remembering is that grotesque description of Myrtle after she's been run over, where it says her left breast was swinging loose like a flap. Which Fitzgerald insisted with Max Perkins that he wanted that in there. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So how does that go? Uh, well, okay. Michaelis and this man reached her first, but when they had torn open her shirtwaist, still damp with perspiration, they saw that her left breast was swinging loose like a flap, and there was no need to listen for the heart beneath. The mouth was wide open and ripped at the corners, as though she had choked a little in giving up the tremendous vitality she had stored so long. That's Scott Shepard, not reading from The Great Gatsby, but <laughs> but reciting from The Great Gatsby. Were you always good at memorizing lines, or have you been as an actor good it's at that? some kind of freak thing that I've always had, yeah. When I was a child, I hadn't actually learned to read, but I had memorized the beginning of Winnie the Pooh, and I think my mother wouldn't tell people that when they came over and would just let them believe that I already knew how to read. So you were a stunt child. I was a stunt child. <laughs> how could I not try to... Put Shepherd to the test. So there was music from my neighbor's house. Through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and women came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched... I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sound, and I tossed half-sick between grotesque reality and savage, frightening dreams. This is probably too hard, but we'll see. One of my... One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at 6 o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends already caught up into their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances. 
and the matchings of invitations. Are you going to the Ordways, the Hersey's, the Schultz's? And the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands. And last, the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. As we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the window and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by. A sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West. Not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells in the frosty dark and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that. A little solemn with the feel of those long winters. A little complacent from growing up in the Caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I practically have it memorized myself. I think it's one of the great, great lyric passages in American narrative writing. It's a love note to St. Paul, Patricia Hampel says. The action in The Great Gatsby takes place in New York, but Nick tells the story from St. Paul after everything has happened, after he's returned home. St. Paul is where Hampel lives and where she grew up hearing stories about Fitzgerald, who was and is the city's most famous son. My town wasn't so different from his town. I did go to the same school that Fitzgerald's mother had gone to, Catholic girls' school, And one time I remember one of the nuns saying, oh, yes, I danced with Scott at the cotillion. Really? So there there was a feeling of his shadow being around. However, he wasn't yet a figure that was accepted and lionized and made much of. This was in the 1950s? 60s. So there were a lot of people around who remembered him who didn't approve of him. He and Zelda cut quite a swath through the social scene here. They got evicted from a number of apartments, and you really didn't have to read him at all to feel that you knew what he was all about because he and Zelda were splashed all over the tabloids. Everything they did was followed. Tom Cruise had nothing on him at that point in his life. (laughs) When did you first read The Great Gatsby? I suppose in high school. Now, of course, it's a book that I reread every few years because I, I love it. And does your sense of it, your appreciation of it, alter with each rereading? The thing I think that really impresses me most, more and more as time goes on, is how brilliant he was as a social critic. He was always treated with contempt by his contemporaries, as if he had this kind of bizarre gift that he could really write like an angel. But in fact, he wasn't that bright. He didn't know how to think. He didn't have a philosophy. He didn't have Mm -hmm. this. He didn't have that. When you think about the take that he has on America, where it was coming from, the agrarian idealism and simplicity of that, to where it was going, the kind of raw capitalist imposition of imperial power, it's amazing how much more aptly he caught it 
than Dos Passos and Hemingway. Their books can seem dated Mm -hmm. and a little slow on the uptake and not having that big resonance about what really this country is about. Fitzgerald had it. He took out a pile of shirts and began throwing them one by one before us. Shirts of sheer linen and thick silk and fine flannel, which lost their folds as they fell and covered the table in many-colored disarray. While we admired, he brought more, and the soft, rich heat mounted higher. Shirts with stripes and scrolls and plaids in coral and apple green and lavender and faint orange with monograms of Indian blue. Suddenly, with a strained sound, Daisy bent her head into the shirts and began to cry stormily. They're such beautiful shirts, she sobbed, her voice muffled in the thick folds. It makes me sad because I've never seen such, such beautiful shirts before. Do you want to see Russell's closet? All of this is fat farm, of course. All of these are fat bomb jeans and khakis. The bunch of Argyle sweaters. That is MTV Cribs taking us into the giant closet of hip-hop impresario Russell Simmons. And when you think about it, what is Gatsby's luxurious pile of shirts and pink suit and, and his yellow convertible but the bling of this suddenly rich young American showing the world that he's really made it? Andrew Lauren watched Cribs a few years ago as he was writing a movie based on Gatsby. Andrew Lauren's father, Ralph Lauren, designed the costumes for the 1974 Great Gatsby movie starring Robert Redford. And as a young man, Lauren Sr. changed his own name from Ralph Lifshitz to Ralph Lauren, sort of like the way that James Gatz became Jay Gatsby. There is a parallel with my dad's journey and Gatsby's in a weird way. A man who grew up not having much, who had a vision and tried to create a world that he didn't have. Andrew Lauren also created a world that wasn't his own in his movie G. Shot on Long Island with a mostly black cast, it was sort of a Gatsby for the hip-hop generation. Welcome to the Hamptons, cuz. When I saw Puffy and Jay-Z and Russell Simmons and all these music impresarios, who were building houses out in the Hamptons and living the big life and sort of status conscious and wearing all their Prada and Gucci, I felt like they were characters right out of Gatsby. Is that what it was about? Him buying you things, taking you places? Just stop it, okay? Is is that what you think? It was about the money? It's never been important. That's always been your own issue. Okay, I left you because I stopped believing in you. The Great Gatsby is all about money, And for the writer Susan Cheever, that's what makes Fitzgerald seem so contemporary. He understood that where the money comes from is tremendously important. He understood the difference between money you make yourself in whatever way and money you inherit. And he understood how important it is. Most novels are about money, but they don't want to admit it. Many short stories are about money, but they don't want to admit it. Fitzgerald just embraces it. Of course, Fitzgerald was way ahead of all of us in many ways. Professor Ruth Pergozzi would agree. Gatsby is a modern book. I went for a drive with Professor Pergozzi, who is a Fitzgerald expert. Is this second? She was born in Brooklyn and taught English at Hofstra University on Long Island. I tried to leave New York. I went to Iowa. I thought I'd start my master's in Iowa. 
<laughs> the stupidest thing I ever did. Iowa City wasn't your cup of tea? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Omaha, so I know. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Queensboro Bridge, keep left. Yeah, you have to go and you'll get right on it. One of the great things about the Great Gatsby is New York City. But today, Professor Pergozzi and I are headed out of Manhattan over the Queensboro Bridge. When did you first read The Great Gatsby? I think in the late 50s. How old were you? I'm going to tell you my age. Well, you were a kid? <laughs> yeah, I was a kid. We were headed out to Long Island, to the town of Great Neck, which Fitzgerald in the book fictionalized as West Egg. He lived there from 1922 to 1924. And that's where he started his work on Gatsby. I wanted to see his house, but also to see the the view from the Long Island Sound. Okay, we go straight and then there'll be a left turn. You see, you can see the expressway from here. Great Neck is, is 20 miles east of the city. Back in the 20s, it was popular with actors and writers. Groucho Marx lived there, the writer Ring Lardner. Musicians like Eddie Cantor and theater people like Flo Ziegfeld of the Ziegfeld Follies. Fitzgerald fit in easily. He and Zelda were part of that world. They knew musicians. Fitzgerald larded the novel with references to popular songs, and and Ruth Brugosi thinks he chose them as carefully as the words he wrote. These songs really reflect both the kind of sentimental innocence and, on the other hand, the kind of really dangerous corruption. So they were used ironically as well as just to give a sense of the pop culture. When Clip Springer had played The Love Nest, he turned around on the bench and searched unhappily for Gatsby in the gloom. I'm all out of practice, you see. I told you I couldn't play. I'm all out of practice. Don't talk so much, old sport, commanded Gatsby. Play. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun. Outside, the wind was loud, and there was a faint flow of thunder along the sound. All the lights were going on in West Egg now. The electric trains, men carrying, were plunging home through the rain from New York. It was the hour of a profound human change, and excitement was generating on the air. One thing's sure and nothing's sure. The rich get richer, and the poor get children. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? Ain't we got fun? He's using it in a double way. Everyone is so intent on having a good time, and they're doing terrible things in the name of fun. There's nothing sure. The rich get rich and the poor get laid off. In the meantime, in between time. You know, it's interesting to me because um, I don't listen to it, but I would imagine that people who listen to this rap music and and a lot of the stuff that's on today, they feel that they're being expressed in it. And that's exactly what the popular music was for Fitzgerald. He was trying to recreate the era. Right. But it is the use of songs like that that made the critics misunderstand the book and made the critics tend to dismiss the book, The Great Gatsby, as just a jazz age book. Here's the exit for exit, Great yeah. Neck. Yeah. 
Pregosi lived in Great Neck when she was writing her Ph.D. dissertation, and as, as a teacher, she'd take her students to see where Fitzgerald had lived, to the house. It's in a regular suburban neighborhood just a couple of blocks from the train station. So it's this uh, kind of Mediterranean house with red yeah. tile roof. Yeah. The house is yellow stucco. Pregosi thinks it was gray back when Fitzgerald lived there. I tried to get the house landmarked, and it went up to the government. But the authorities told Pergozzi that a writer in America gets only one official house, and St. Paul already had dibs on Fitzgerald. Okay, we have to go right, I think, to the water. Exploring Great Neck isn't easy. Like lots of suburbs, there are many, many meandering streets, driveways with signs marked private. Can't imagine people living this way. They don't exactly encourage sightseeing out here. I remember I used to take students. I would go into some of these driveways and say, oh, we're lost, you know, because I wanted them to see the water. And so did I. Kenilworth, private. We're lost, right? Eventually, we reached a locked metal fence not too far from the shore. Well, there's the water. Well, there's the water, yeah. It wasn't Gatsby's lawn, but it really was the famous view. Across the Courtesy Bay, the white palaces of fashionable East Egg glittered along the water. And you could see the light. You see the lights across uh-huh. there? It's close enough that you can make out buildings and lights yes, and stuff, but exactly. far enough away that you can imagine exactly. it being some dreamland. It gives dreamland. you that sense of mystery yes. because you have the trees yes. and yes. everything. Yeah. If it wasn't for the mist, we could see your home across the bay, said Gatsby. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. I just wish that we could be a little closer. Private property, no fishing, no public access area for residents only. Violets are trespassing and subject to arrest. Yeah, okay. I think we better get out of here. Great Neck today looks a lot like a lot of other older suburbs. But seeing the water was different. Nothing to clutter the view. I I could actually imagine Fitzgerald strolling out on a lawn at cocktail parties, eavesdropping on the conversations, uh, imagining fragments of his book. Coming up, we'll follow the trail of the Great Gatsby to a high school in Brooklyn and then to college in Tehran under Islamic law. Why do we need to read about love affairs when we're dealing with life and death, a revolution? That's ahead this hour in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. When it was first published, a lot of people, a lot of critics, dismissed The Great Gatsby. We're quite convinced after reading The Great Gatsby that Mr. Fitzgerald is not one of the great American writers of today. The problem is that the book was short and romantic and almost too easy to read. There were pop songs in it. This is a book for the season only. But T.S. Eliot, who knew a few things about serious literature, wrote to Fitzgerald. He wrote... It seems to me to be the first step American fiction has taken since Henry James. Willa Cather and Edith Wharton also sent Fitzgerald notes of praise. 
I'm Kurt Anderson. Today in Studio 360, we're looking at how The Great Gatsby has become an American icon. It's a book that Hunter S. Thompson, when he was young in the 1950s, typed out, copied word by word, trying to mind meld with Fitzgerald. The novelist Jonathan Franzen, who wrote The Corrections, has tried that kind of close study himself. I try to analyze sentences and I fail. I can keep in that analytical head for about half a page and then I just roll over on my back and present my belly and let him stroke it. That's And, and that's just a measure of its goodness in your view? I think it's um, – one thing that's remarkable about The Great Gatsby is how straightforward it is. It's not like there are heavy allegorical and symbolical depths to be plumbed. You know, no one gets any medals for reading The Great Gatsby twice. It's just not gnarly and naughty enough. Yeah, exactly. You've written about having and seeking a, a direct personal relationship with art, quote unquote. Can you give any sense specifically what that means in terms of your relationship to The Great Gatsby? When I want to know more, when I want to get more, I go back to it in the same way a believing Christian might go to the Bible and just read those passages again. And it's a different person reading the passages. Even a couple of years later, the, you know, the party and celebrity scene in Gatsby read differently when you've been through that yourself. My books weren't known at all until my third novel was published. And then suddenly that book was really, really well known. Um, I got a taste in my early 40s of what Fitzgerald had when he was you know, 25. And I think that's the way it's supposed to work with texts you have a personal relationship with. You change, you go back, you see it differently. It becomes almost like memories of your own that you're revisiting, thinking about differently. Shall we take anything to drink? Called Daisy from an upper window. I'll get some whiskey, answered Tom. He went inside. Gatsby turned to me rigidly. I can't say anything in his household, sport. She's got an indiscreet voice, I remarked. It's full of... I hesitated. Her voice is full of money, he said suddenly. That was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it. The symbol song of it. High in a white palace... The King's Daughter, The Golden Girl. Some readers of the book identify with Gatsby, others with Nick Carraway. Garth Wolkoff was one of those who went with Nick. Here was an observer trying to figure things out from a moral perspective and having a really hard time of it. Wolkoff first read the book more than 20 years ago in his 12th grade AP English class. And today, he finds himself teaching the novel to an AP English class at a high school in Brooklyn. Good morning. All right. Take out the Great Gatsby. This is kind of hard, but if we can get this first chapter, it kind of frames the whole novel. You think about Brooklyn High School and its bad reputation and huge overcrowded classes and violence and all that. I've got kids here sitting around arguing about whether Nick was a reliable narrator or not. I mean, that's a dream. In this paragraph, it seems like Gatsby is making him go against, like, his own biasness because, like... 
At first, like, I was liking Nick. Like, I thought he was, you know, he was a true narrator. Like, he wasn't telling no lies. Everything he said, I read the book and I said, I would do the same thing. Let's go to the text. Come on. Go on, please. Oh, let's have fun, she begged him. It's too hot to fuss. He didn't answer. Have it your own way, she said. Come on, join him. Stacy, someone that seems hurrying and no, no. no. she's very lent, luxurious. What'd you say? Chillax. She's very chillaxed. <laughs> and if I knew what that was, I would agree. With you. <laughs> chillax. What you, chill, chill, like chill and relax because I didn't really like her flimsy attitude. Chillax attitude because she's like the damsel in distress, depending on other people or another man to help her get out of the trouble that she made for herself. I want to say something. Oh, go ahead. Oh, you know how Daisy takes the, oh, since I'm pretty and I know my voice flutters, I'm going to use what I have and nah, 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 and get what she wants. I Man, was kind of rooting for Gatsby until I found out that he was he wanted Daisy because I felt like Gatsby was so great. Like he had ambition. A lot of people, they, you know, they say they want to do things, but they don't make it happen or they don't take steps towards it. It's one thing to say thing. It's another thing to do it. All right. Number one, what is our moral paradigm after reading this book? I want my kids to think about their lives through a moral framework in general. And if they get that from Gatsby, great. I mean, I wouldn't base it solely like on a book, but you could learn a lot of things from a book. And morals are one of them. Why do you think? I know they get it from church. I know they get it from their parents. I don't think of a book as a as a thing that'll save your soul, so... Okay, so she's communicating through her eyes. What is she saying? I want you. <laughs> My job is to teach what's good about literature. What a great job. Teenagers, who are the best people in the world, to talk to them about um, good and evil. Okay. Let us stop there. Garth Walkoff wants Gatsby to offer his students in Brooklyn some moral lessons or at least raise questions about behavior that might stick with them. When Azar Nafisi taught the book in Iran, moral instruction was really the last thing on her mind. But her students demanded it. They felt that this book was now irrelevant. Why do we need to read about um, love affairs uh, when we're dealing with matters that are far more important, the matters of a society's life and death, a revolution? Nafisi started teaching English and American literature to Iranian college students in 1979, which was the year the Shah was overthrown. She wrote a book about that experience, the bestseller Reading Lolita in Tehran. One day back then, uh, one of her students named Niazi pulled her aside to complain. The great Gatsby was immoral. It was at odds with the new standards of strict Islam. I felt that he was confronting the book not as a reader, but as a prosecutor. And I thought maybe it's a good idea for him uh, to be placed, um, you know, in that situation, uh, <laughs> to see how it feels for him to actually play the role uh, of a prosecutor. So Nafisi decided to put the book on trial. Her classroom became a literary courtroom. Niazi was the prosecutor, another student, the defense attorney, and the teacher 
should be the judge, right? No, my role wasn't the judge. They felt that if I chose the book, then I should become the book, <laughs> the accused, in a sense. So I became the defendant. And so the, the trial went on. How long did it last? Um, it lasted about um, two hours. There was a verdict. Oh, yeah. But, but, but I don't know if you could call it a verdict because what happened was that the majority of the class um, were with the defense. Um, some of them did not dare say it openly. The best thing was that it created serious debates among the students. They were fighting over not the revolution, but, but over Gatsby. And beyond the arguments for or against and the role of literature, whether it should be political and all those things, did you get a sense that some of them actually took pleasure in, in the reading? Yes. You know, some got completely involved in the fate. Um, one or two told me how at the end of the book they cried, <laughs> you know, and, and, and some people were also taking sides with characters, uh, you know. Which of the characters do you most closely embrace? <laughs> well, in a way, I guess I identify with Nick, but the person to whom my heart goes out to is Gatsby. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that, that is the miracle. Uh, uh, that Fitzgerald has created to create a character with whom you empathize so much and at the same time you disapprove of. Yeah. And the only person that he hurt was really himself. Did your students in Iran relate more to Nick or to the doomed Gatsby? Well, I think that um, for them, um, Gatsby was the hero and, and Nick was a little, what you call it, uh, fussy. <laughs> uh-huh. He came out too much as a judge. Which is sort of funny, given the context. Uh, so, so your Islamist students like Jay Gatsby, even though with his money and parties and clothes and dealings with gangsters, he was so completely... Uh, a decadent, immoral American? One of the things that I found absolutely fascinating in my um, uh, Islamist students and, and, and some of the colleagues was while they condemned that den of inequity, they were absolutely fascinated by it. As if you want to obliterate it because it's so seductive. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, in many ways, they were the dreamers. And uh, their dream turned into a uh, horrible and cruel reality. Uh, It didn't just eliminate um, those who did not agree with them. In the long run, it eliminated many of them. Before the end of the book, Gatsby, the, the big dreamer, loses Daisy. She's driving his car and speeding when she runs down and kills Myrtle, who's Tom's mistress. Myrtle's husband, George, recognizes the car and tracks Gatsby down and shoots him dead in his swimming pool. No one except Gatsby's father shows up for the funeral, and Nick, at the end, is left alone, thinking it all over, trying to tie up the loose ends in his mind. And as I sat there, brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. 
Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter tomorrow. We will run faster, stretch out our arms farther. And one fine morning. So we beat on. Boats against the current. Borne back ceaselessly into the past. It is hard not to give Fitzgerald those famous last words. That incredible expression of profound disillusionment. But something else has stuck with me. Tis not from him be thine happy love. Fitzgerald was surely deeply disillusioned, but on the only recording we have of him speaking near the end of his life, what did he want to read? And shadows numberless singest of summer and full-throated ease. Romantic poetry, John Keats, the very, very furthest thing from cynicism. And then... Hello, that's the end. Never mind, cut it off. He was done. Never mind, cut it off. And so are we. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening to this hour of Studio 360's American Icon series. Our program was produced by Emily Botine, with help from Jocelyn Gonzalez, Laurieann Agnesi, John Delore, and Derek John. David Krasnow was our editor. Thanks also to Denaya Bathea and Dasney Martinez, the High School for Public Service, John Harbison, Nancy Harrow, Nancy Wilson, and our wonderful Nick Carraway, who was Scott Shepard. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International.